voices from Earth, on the outskirts of space. Like, if you don't have that kind of like fascination for that type of environment, because some people, frankly, could just tell you this is so bland. You know, like, why would I like waste my time going here instead of going to the Amazonia uh, rainforest, for example? I really, frankly, understand that, like, to be honest. Um, but at the same time, I'd say to whoever prefer to go to the rainforest, that yes, I think you should try and do both if you can. You know, <laughs> like both go to the rainforest and experience, like, you know, like the kind of the realities of our worlds. But then at the same time, also experience the carpets, kind of. Uh, aspect of things which is the kind of more administration side like how administrations runs how paper runs The phrase for all mankind is synonymous with the Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969. Since Neil Armstrong made his most infamous small step, this iconic event has remained in the forefront of popular culture for over half a century. Today, the Apollo program is often remembered as a momentous and symbolic achievement. For a moment, the mesmerising images of men walking on the moon created something unprecedented, a sense of a global identity. However, Apollo continues to divide opinion about its social and political impact, particularly in terms of diversity. In the end, the geopolitical context of the space race made the moon landings a triumph of American exceptionalism. This was war by another means, where the US defeated the Soviet Union in a show of military might off Earth. By planting the stars and stripes in the lunar dust, the astronauts marked the beginning of the end of the Cold War. For space historian Roger Launius, the words, we came in peace for all mankind, only muted the bald-faced imperialism that was represented by planting the flag. Fifty years on, Apollo is often remembered for its achievements apart and abstracted from the context of war, as well as a distinctly American event. Fast forward to October 2019, Apollo was again central to a narrative of America first. Sitraka and I were in Washington DC to attend the 70th International Astronautical Congress the world's largest annual astronautics and space engineering conference. It was no coincidence that Washington was the chosen city this year, as 2019 marked the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. In his speech to open the Congress, Vice President Mike Pence did not miss the chance to mobilise Apollo nostalgia for the American cause. In his first lines, he invited the audience to applaud NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine and the President of the United States himself. More importantly, would you all join me in thanking the great administrator of NASA for the work he is doing to revive American leadership in space. And as I begin, allow me to bring greetings from a man who is committed to renewing American leadership here on Earth and in the boundless expanse of space and who has brought a renewed vigor and vision to America's space enterprise, I bring greetings from the 45th President of the United States of America. In Washington, D.C., outer space felt an international yet also very American place. Under the influence of the current U.S. administration, the feeling of internationalism was threatened to be exposed once again as a front for a monoculture of ideas and beliefs. Was this perceived togetherness in space a kind of truth, or merely a veneer? Had a 20th century war front of opposing ideologies been replaced by an open market for capitalist competition? We were interested to find out what diversity means at the largest gathering of the space industry. We were also looking for other potential meanings which could be imagined and enabled by working in and with outer space. At the Congress, we met with fellow attendees and recorded our conversations. We spoke with artists, designers, engineers and anthropologists each present at the Congress via different and unexpected backgrounds. From our conversations, 
We learned that practices that deal with outer space exploration demand a multidisciplinary approach in action and in attitude. A diversity of methods and approaches to deal with the complex realities of space projects. Outer space also demands diversity in social and political terms. A sense of fair representation. A sense of justice. A justice that includes the shared imagery and narratives that shape our collective imaginations of the cosmos and the human place in the universe. In the space industry, many prominent and powerful actors project the dream of humans as a space-faring civilization, exploring and settling the far reaches of the solar system. Whatever your perspective is on this dream, in practical terms, there is arguably an inflection point where the reality of deep space exploration requires a different approach to space mission design. The scales are too vast. The distances are too great. Some of us humans will have to leave the Earth behind for good. This premise poses concerns that lead to different methods and perspectives in artistic and engineering projects. Angelo Vermeulen, artist and evolutionary biologist, confirms this when describing the design process for a spaceship going very, very far away. The big challenge when you're talking about interstellar exploration is actually the fact that when you're engaging with interstellar space, with the interstellar medium, you're confronted with deep levels of uncertainty. Space in general, of course, is all about uncertainty, but the way it was handled, for example, when the Apollo program was set up was to build subsequent missions that each time would get closer and closer to the moon, but they would get back to Earth, fix the system, optimize their system using the lessons learned, and then the next trip would go a little further. So this kind of gradual, stepwise approach to reach the end, the end goal. And of course, it was Apollo 11 that actually touched the surface of the moon. So they needed 10 missions before that. When we're thinking about interstellar exploration, this is not possible any longer. You can go a little interstellar, come all the way back to Earth, fix your system, and then go back. So you need a radically different approach there. And this is, this is almost like a conundrum for an engineer, of course. When you give an engineer a challenge, like, listen, um, we, we, we want to go there, um, but we have no idea what's going to happen, so good luck with designing a system. Um, this, from a traditional engineering perspective, seems like a very difficult task, of course. A kind of interstellar ramjet has been proposed, which scoops up the hydrogen atoms which float between the stars accelerates them into an engine and spits them out the back. But in deep space, there is one atom for every 10 cubic centimeters of space. For the ramjet to work, it has to have a frontal scoop hundreds of kilometers across. When the ship reaches relativistic velocities, the hydrogen atoms will be moving with respect to the interstellar spaceship at close to the speed of light. If precautions aren't taken, the passengers will be fried by these induced cosmic rays. But I'm a developmental biologist. I look at the world through a lens of biology. It's not my only lens, but it's definitely one of my, my favorite lenses. And what we're doing in our research is basically using evolution and growth as components within our starship design. So it's basically coming up with a starship that actually grows and evolves and adapts during its journey. And we're, we're making this concept operational uh, by using um, ideas and technologies that are actually already out there. Uh, we're talking about 3D printing, space-based 3D manufacturing. So the ship is partially being printed and reprinted during its journey. We're talking about asteroid mining because, of course, when you're talking about 3D manufacturing, you do need some resources and you don't want to bring all those resources from Earth. That would just be too costly and inefficient. So you're using the asteroid as a resource and gradually transforming the asteroid into a spaceship. You're basically mining the asteroid, hollowing out the asteroid and replacing the empty spaces with a 3D printed architecture that gradually starts growing out of the asteroid itself. And it's the, the, the combination of the asteroid and this architecture that is actually the spaceship. So you redirect the asteroid to a new uh, destination. Transforming asteroids into spaceships is one example of artists and designers readily breaking away from earthbound constraints, both physical and conceptual, for exploring alternative ideas. This is also the case for designer and musician Sans Fish, who embraces the potential of microgravity for designing an instrument for outer space. I think about it as like a material almost, like microgravity as a material, um, because it's, 
I guess you call it a constraint. It's, I mean, it's just as much of a constraint as gravity is a constraint, right? And, and to a large degree, we've kind of rediscovered gravity in, in these experiments. We almost learned more about what we've been assuming all along down here than what we learned up there. Um, for instance, like a piano, if you, if you take a piano into microgravity, it wouldn't work. And it, this was a surprise to me, but the reason the keys come back up is because there's a counterweight. And so when you let go of it, of course, that counterweight's not going to work in microgravity. Uh, and we had some friends do um, uh, zero gravity band, um, and they were just taking instruments up and trying to like you know work through what it's like to perform in microgravity. Brought a synthesizer to avoid the, this kind of counterweight that the piano has, but went to turn one of the knobs on it, and the entire synthesizer just turned around instead of the <laughs> knob turning. <laughs> so. So, I mean, all these, these elements that you would never think were designed to depend on gravity are, are very, very dependent on gravity, and that's, that's all I can see now when I, when I look at things that are designed for, for terrestrial use. Sounds and collaborator Nicole Luyer performed with their instrument, the telemetron, in microgravity on two parabolic flights. We ended up uh, sketching out what a musical instrument would be like because we saw uh, things floating around behind the astronauts as they'd be giving tours of the station or being interviewed. And they had this really beautiful kind of poetic motion, right? So a tool would float by in the background and just have it, its own kind of orbit or its own kind of just like you know, beautiful independent motion. Um, and so we wanted to try and capture that poetic motion and, and create music from that. Um, so what we did was create the first version of what we call the telemetron, which is uh, reference to telemetry, right? This like collecting data about a body and how it's moving in space, and uh, and turn that into musical notes uh, by using gyroscopes or IMUs, or inertial momentum units. Um, and so we created a chamber that we could kind of perform with, because of course one of the questions we were grappling with is, okay, so how do you perform when you yourself are floating, as well as the instrument? I think we were more interested in kind of. Um, just starting from the, the reality of, of space and life in microgravity and, and trying to see what emerged from that. So we didn't really decide on any kind of textures or sounds ahead of time. We might have had conversations between like, is it percussive or is it um, you know, melodic? Um, but yeah, so we, we generally just went up there and the engines are so loud in, in the in the flight that it was it was hard to hear anything anyways so really we were playing more with the kind of gestures and the, the physical performance of it Nicole likes to call it a dance between a human and a non-human body because you're really both subject to the same physics while you're performing right it's not like a guitar that's just kind of uh, you know sitting on your on your leg uh, and then you're controlling it so you're both kind of doing this dance um, and we recorded that data and then after the fact we we thought about uh, how that might actually best be represented through synthesis. What also impressed Sands about microgravity was its capacity to give musical instruments and other design objects a different sense of agency. I admire the people of the future who will be able to do like seven flights in a week <laughs> and just like <laughs> rapidly evolve their idea of a musical instrument or what have you. Um, so we did two um, and uh, kind of reflected a lot on the first experience. Uh, and when we designed the second, we, we created three other musical instruments um, for microgravity for the second flight. And what, one of the things that we thought about uh, when we imagined what it was, what it was like up there, when we reflected on what was, what our first flight was about, um, we we noticed one thing, and that's that the instruments didn't stop playing when we stopped playing them. You know, so the recording just has like a lot of, uh, you know, not just noise, but uh, you know, we weren't. Uh, during the parabolas, we were actively manipulating the instrument, and in between, uh, there's still motion, right? The plane's arcing up and down, and um, and so one of the things that we were really interested in is this this idea of agency, right? That like objects that you design for microgravity have some potential degree of agency when they're not being used by the human that they were designed to be used for, and so we decided to kind of lean into that and and really, you know, and again, now we're getting into like a more like theories of design for, for microgravity, which I think is a much broader conversation and one that I'm excited to get into. By embracing the difference and uniqueness of outer space as an environment, the Telemetron project contrasts many of the popular visions of space futures from science and science fiction, where life on Earth as we know it is often simply transplanted onto manufactured off-world habitats. 
The 1970s designs for enormous floating space colonies by Gerard K. O'Neill are a particularly good example here. The experience of designing the musical instrument made Sands think about the many ways how everyday life is radically different in outer space, almost by default. I think there's just so many interesting decisions to be made yeah. now, right? So yeah, that, uh, it's, it's interesting to see people play around with those things. I think that it's interesting to see a breadth of, of those things, you know, like c culturally and otherwise. So I mean, when you, when you need to, um, when Muslims need to pray in space, they are supposed to face Mecca. Uh, but they absolutely can't do that, right? Like you're moving at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour and that's rapidly changing. And, and so I, that's just to say that I'm, I want to see a, a real breadth mm -hmm. of considerations about what life is like in space for a variety of lifestyles, for a variety of beliefs, for a variety of um, you know, professional and, and personal lifestyles. This is Taurus. The concept that has evolved from the work of these teams of scientists and engineers. They believe the huge space colony could be built before the year 2000. The space colony has the ability to provide a facility in space where human beings can conduct fruitful industry. And so, yeah, the, seeing some of those kind of mock-ups and, and ideas about what it might be like are great. I think they're largely based in the kind of uh, what is very historically white science fiction uh, narratives and so yeah I'm, I'm excited to just see what happens in the next 10 to 20 years and I'm excited to be here at the conference to see uh, you know all these people like you know in the kind of weird corner of the conference where we're grappling with these things you know yeah, yeah. all the different ideas that are coming out of it. The different approaches of our interviewees share an emphasis on interdisciplinarity. They seek the transformative potential of working with others beyond their field of expertise and different to their own culture. Angel Overmullen uses the premise of an evolving interstellar spaceship that builds itself as it travels to create complex designs rooted in a transdisciplinary approach. For designing this spaceship, a diverse team of collaborators enables the building of a collective intelligence that shares the authorship of the designs. We want to build, we want to design a concept of an evolving spaceship. And in the beginning, there is, you know, this, this is what it is. And you come together very quickly, some initial ideas bubble up that are very, that you feel are going to be determining the rest of the project, like 3D printing, for example. It was pretty clear early on in the project this was going to be our focus. But there were still a lot of unknowns. Um, and it's interesting how um, within these workshops and these discussion groups, um, because we basically came together and started sketching and, and discussing and putting things on the walls, um, how you're gradually building a shared body of knowledge. And each time you come back again, you kind of build upon that previous, on those previous discussions. Um, in the beginning, there is really no lexicon. There are no images. There is no shared imagination of how such a structure could look like. But gradually over time, through visualization, through discussion, a specific crystallization of that particular concept is, is starting to happen, and then you can build on that on that on that shape. Uh, the disadvantage is, of course, that at a certain point you've really moved your, your as a group you've moved in a very specific direction. So I think what I would be interested in is when when we fleshed out this concept uh, in, uh, in, a, in a proper way and we've got some, some results uh, to publish, uh, to reboot the whole exercise and maybe see if the same concept could be translated. The Spaceship Project is a fascinating example of co-creation as a particular method and culture. The Spaceship's work as a thought experiment that poses many implications for thinking about space futures from a bottom-up, inclusive and holistic perspective. Co-creation is key in all the projects that we do. And co-creation and transdisciplinarity are very related in our methodology. And the underlying, um, the underlying ideology behind our approach to co-creation is the following. First of all, it's important to recalibrate co-creation. Co-creation has been around, the concept has been around as a very popular topic since the last 25 years or so. And to be very specific, the way we use co-creation is, is, is the following. It's, it's definitely not creating together. That's just a way too vague and, and, and unuse, not very useful definition, I think. Uh, what co-creation is all about is that, of course, we all have these self-defined identities of skills and capabilities and kind of professional identity. 
And in co-creation, you basically are allowed, you're not just doing it yourself, but you're allowed to step out of that zone of self-described professionality, stepping into another zone, being allowed to do that, and then the ideas and the contributions that you make within that other field are taken seriously and are part of that dialogue within that other domain. That's really what co-creation is about. Co-creation is not just you making a move into another domain, but the other domain has to be open and has to take your contribution very seriously, otherwise it's not going to work. And this requires a very particular culture, which is, which is, un is, is, is uneasy for some people. Uh, and especially when people um, are quite territorial about their expertise, it might be very confrontational to, uh, to end up in a culture where the opinion of a non-expert, of an amateur, is, t is, 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 is absorbed and is used as one of the elements to find solutions. And so this is, this is really what we've been, we've been cultivating. The useful non-expert, working with established fields in meaningful and productive ways, is a vital role for artists and designers to join in the debate and design of possible futures in outer space. You need to not only be knowledgeable, but transdisciplinary in your approach and skill set, constantly switching dimensions, methods and perspectives. This is put into practice by space architects who work directly with the space industry. As architect Barbara Imhoff explains, she needs to consider a wide range of issues and concerns from different viewpoints as she designs for living and working in outer space. But I think as an architect you also learn how to, to imagine, to really try to imagine how is the scenario, how is the, the interaction, what do I do, how is the environment, and then design for that. So it's both ways. It's like being a little bit like an actor. An actor also always needs to imagine a certain you know, emotion or you know, circumstance to be able to reenact it. But, um, but an architect, and an architect needs to do the same thing. So, uh, but of course, it's good to know, um, you know, astronauts to seek their opinions and their feedback, and um, and then there are also little things one can do to, how can I say, to simulate zero gravity, like going diving, um, or maybe going on a parabolic flight. But you know, the the easier ways is is, you know, going diving and just see, you know, how how the the space changes, the perception of space uh, changes. Yeah, as part of uh, my work life, I have come across a lot of uh, simulators or simulations. And, and I think that however you simulate or whatever you simulate, you get a better feeling for what it could be in reality. So, and, and of course you have virtual tools um, and you have these like real environment tools where you go out into a remote, like, let's say Antarctica, um, but you can also do it at home and just, you know, if you want to isolate yourself and feel like an isolated, a lonely astronaut in space, you just, you know, lock yourself into your room for a couple of days and you probably get a similar feeling. As we learned from Barbara, the designs of space architects are not limited to a particular type of space habitat, but can apply to many different possible elements of space mission hardware. From habitation modules on a space station orbiting the moon, to lunar bases made from 3D printed lunar regolith. In this way, as speculative projects for lunar settlements become increasingly real, multi-dimensional expertise helps to create multiple opportunities to be involved in the design of human space futures. So we are trying to be involved in every step possible because we have this, you know, like really long experience now in in the area, and um, so this is what I think this is our opportunity now or our chance now that there is this. It's it's very, it becomes suddenly very tangible. You know, the moon, um, like real hardware, uh, in as in Gateway, the habitation module, and then also you know in my lifetime our lunar base so this is um, so in that sense I think um, we want to be involved in you know all steps. The desire to be transgressive does not reside with artists and designers alone. We met with Chris Welch, Professor of Astronautics and Space Engineering at the International Space University. As a self-styled spacist he co-creates cultural projects and introduces other ideas and perspectives to his more scientific and educational work. When I've had the opportunity to 
shall we say, push the cultural agenda within ISU, I, you know, I, I have done that. So, for instance, uh, at the moment we have a payload on the International Space Station. It's a small cube, 10 by 10 by 10. Uh, it sits in a, in a, in a, effectively in a metal box called the Ice Cubes facility in the Columbus module there. Uh, and that's an artistic payload, which uh, created with a friend of mine, a Mexican artist uh, based in Berlin, Naum. Okay. Um, yep. And it's an interactive kaleidoscope. Uh, and we, we pushed quite hard to be allowed to fly an art payload because there's still something a bit transgressive about not doing science. Mm. Uh, uh, and the, the, the way it works, uh, you put your finger on a pulse sensor on the ground and it measures your, your pulse and it transmits the pulse up to the space station into this box and it makes the kaleidoscope turn and then there's a little bit with some uh, some things to float around in, what we call the gems can float around, and there's a programmable uh, light pad and a video camera, and then in near real time, it depends a little bit on, uh, on the alignment of the space station and the, and the communications infrastructure, you get a video that comes back down that shows the kaleidoscope turning. Uh, and so that's uh, you know, our first interactive uh, work of art, and I'm very pleased that we've been able to do that and to show that you can, you can go to space for other reasons. And as we go forward, as we fly more payloads, the Space Payloads Laboratory, you know, it's very clear that although obviously building things is a te technological and technical uh, activity, we're interdisciplinary. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we're open to, uh, to people proposing, you know, other, other sorts of payloads if that's what they're interested in. Being interdisciplinary also relates to the projects of Vorma Ovianmada, who is part of the MIT Space Enabled Group. Space Enabled utilise space technology to collaborate with different communities on projects that are markedly down-to-earth. Ufuoma told us about a project in Benin, where space-based technical expertise complements local knowledge. Working together with local companies, the project transforms a harmful species of plant into a sustainable solution to fight oil-based pollution on local lakes. And um, Space Enabled um, started a collaboration with them a little over a year ago to use satellite data, um, drone imagery and water quality sensing to create a monitoring and forecasting tool for the water hyacinth um, because it grows um, on this like massive lake and like all these different tributaries and so you can imagine um, for Greenkeeper Africa, a use case where um, with this tool they could see that in January there's going to be a bloom of water hyacinth in this part, on the east part of the lake, and then on the west part of the lake. And then, um, you know, any company has a limited amount of resources and capacity. So then the question is, where do you harvest if you have mm -hmm. a limited amount of resources? And so the idea is to combine both this um, environmental forecasting tool with like social factors such as like population density, income, etc. Um, to create essentially a risk metric, a spatial risk metric so that um, Greenkeeper Africa could forecast into the future the areas that are most at risk from the harms of the water hyacinth problem. Ufuoma also described her role in the project in multi-dimensional terms. When I was there in August, I was flying drones, which was really fun. Um, <laughs> and then um, the water quality sensing kit, um, I'm also designing and have been working with, um, leading a team of like undergrad interns as well, um, to create a low-cost water quality kit that can be scaled across the lake. And um, we can use those parameters to match that up with the satellite data to improve the classification and prediction capabilities. Crucially, the benefit of the local communities remains of paramount importance for the Space Enabled initiative. And we don't have like a hard and fast rule, but um, a couple of things that we ask ourselves and I guess kind of our rules is we don't go places we're not invited. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's the first thing is just that we believe that um, local people, um, leaders in whatever space, they know their environment, their communities, their needs better than we do. And so um, even if we might see like a interesting thing in some country, like unless there's an ask mm -hmm. for our like services or support or collaboration, we're not going to just show up there. So that's one way in that we try to balance um, making sure that we're not um, creating a unbalanced power dynamic by just right. showing up somewhere. So we work with development leaders that are like already doing positive work in their communities. There are other possible permutations when you work closely with other disciplines and fields. 
they may also be the people you study. For anthropologist Tamara Alvarez, informants should be collaborators. We need to make the effort of understanding the other people's stand, not just as an object, but also as, you know, we have to be vulnerable to the possibility that we may be changed by the people we study. And before it was more like, okay, we go to this tribe, we study these people, we go back to our, you know, London University or whatever in the metropole, and then we deliver all those uh, lectures and write books about them, and that's it. But right now it's more like equal to equal sort of relationship and being open to be changed by them also, you know. For Tamara, it is important to be open to change and adaptable if you want to affect change yourself. It's about a dedication to learning about people reaching for equal relationships, and adapting your language to have productive conversations. And I think we had this conversation before, you know, that when I had to deliver my paper a couple of days ago, the genre is completely different. I can't use the same theoretical frameworks that I use when I go to an anthropological conference, for instance, and there's no reading a paper, it's more like um, giving a presentation, so you have to adapt to their methods as well to be able to have a meaningful conversation. Of course, I could have written a paper as I do for, um, you know, conferences in my discipline, but I think that would have uh, much less impact. And what I want is basically to have this voice heard um, that I think it doesn't represent only me, but a kind of body of work in social science that is being critical of this space exploration, settlement scenarios, etc. Designing for outer space futures, it matters not only to synthesize perspectives of different professional disciplines, but also from different cultures. There are marked differences between people's approaches to investigating and designing for outer space, as explained by designer Pratima Muniapa, who draws from indigenous peoples to apply softer methods of conservation in her designs. So for example, one project that I've been working on with um, a group called the Solikas in the Western Ghats of India. And uh, so when the British came and instituted a forest department in India, they started to use a lot of Western-centric methods to, to see about the conservation of the land as well as the management of the land. And so largely the way that we still practice is, uses remnants of like earlier archaic sort of colonial practices. Mm -hmm. and, and in many ways we still, we still reproduce it. So for example, the forest is divided into a grid um, and each block is administratively managed. And so if you think about it, you're using a map, which is a very spatial bird's eye view to manage a forest. Um, but for the Solikas who live in the forest, um, they have 27 words for rain. So they have the rain that kisses the leaf litter, but doesn't wet the ground, the rain that makes elephants shiver, um, burnt suit rain. It's, it's entirely magical. And so for these people who in many ways don't really use maps and don't perceive of their landscape from this top-down, segregated, compositional way. They exist in a rain-based ecology, they exist in time. Each type of rain morphogenetically affects the landscape and it's a landscape practice. And so it's just a, a shift in a different ontology and um, and so in this case, it's like it's just a much softer way I think of designing as opposed to like designing at the scale of policy or product. Pratima seeks to amplify the voices of the marginalised, not only for the cause of justice but also for the productive potential of their perspectives. The multicultural is just as important as the multidisciplinary, and their individual transformative potential is complementary to each other. The uneven hierarchy of different cultural voices in terms of their power and pervasiveness also has further implications for the human development and settlement of outer space. If it is, I think, um, a scarcity of resources that's our primary reason to go, um, it also becomes really important to consider that the world's most biodiverse areas like 70% are in the hands of the most marginalized, which are our indigenous people. As of now, I'm, this is, it could be me very naively saying this, but like a lot of the reasons we seem to want to go is extraction, industrialization, re-territorialization, and um, we don't have any narratives or mythologies that are necessarily productive, um, that 
explore what an indigenous ethic for space exploration might look like about the rights of land on Mars rather than the rights to land on Mars. The music is different here. The vibrations are different. Not like Planet Rave. Planet Rave's sound of guns, anger, frustration. Diversity in the space industry can be read in terms of scales. The International Astronautical Congress itself brings together many different disciplines and fields, including artists and designers such as ourselves. I think it's, um, well, the, the IAC is always a conference where many people come together from very many disciplines. It's very diverse, I have to say. Also, people from all over the world. So I think that's what it's, uh, makes it special, the diversity. And um, we, as space architects, I belong to a as a space architect. I belong to a community where we also run sessions, space architecture sessions. And maybe um, you know, at this anniversary of the you know 50 years after Buzz Aldrin and uh, Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, uh, I have to say that also we space architects are now gathering some more momentum. The rise of the private sector, widely known as new space also represents a change in the space industry landscape to some extent. This means changing mindsets and approaches, including a greater risk culture that drives rapid space developments. Within the space community, I think you, know, you need people who, who are prepared to take more risks, and we're seeing a development of that now with uh, space entrepreneurship. Uh, I think that's, that's certainly the case. And as, as it gets cheaper and cheaper to go into space, there'll be more and more of that. The reason that it was very conservative in the past was because it was so expensive to get there uh, and of course the engineers are trying to reduce the risk and reduce the any potential loss of uh, expenditure but the cheaper it gets the the more people will, will take the risk and the the uh, the kind of Silicon Valley you know minimum viable product type of approach to uh, you know creating you know new space activities uh, is, is one that's coming in as, as the older one is, is going out. I mean, there'll still be a place for conventional engineering when you're doing big projects, but, you know, I used to know the names of all the space companies in the world, and that was easy because there were only 10 or so. You know? <laughs> yeah. And now, I, you know, I, I walk around the exhibition here, hall here at the IAC, and there are companies I've, I've never heard of before. And, you know, my email, they're always popping up on the social media, they're popping up. And so we're in a very, very different position from what we were 25 years ago. So, so you can say the field of space exploration is diversifying in a shift away from government agencies to private companies. And yet, this is plainly nowhere near enough. So says Nelly Ben-Hayoun, a designer who has actively participated in the Congress for a number of years, creatively embedding herself in the space industry establishment in a number of ways. I hope that things will change as well, like in terms of diversity and so forth. So yes, yeah, so it's like seven years that I'm going to the Astronautical Congress every year. It's quite an interesting place as well in terms of how it functions, the kind of the backstage of it. Uh, and so quite when I started going there, it was in Beijing. Uh, and it was in 2013. And, you know, at that time, I had absolutely no clue about what this conference was. And I must say I was quite attracted by the very rigidity of it uh, and absolute lack of diversity. I mean, you're talking about mainly old white male. I mean, this is really what the space industry is. But suddenly when you come to this Congress, you realize it's uh, time 500 because suddenly it really is impacting right there. You know, you can see them all and you realize that actually, yes, there is a massive issue in the way that uh, space and space exploration is being led. Now, you could say, okay, but what's the problem with that? You know, because at the end of the day, like, you know, space maybe is just like little, you know, all white male playing with like new kind of tech in rockets and so on. Well, the problem I'm going to tell you is that uh, actually when it comes to it, uh, it's about the future of humanity. Since that first encounter with a male, pale and stale Congress in Beijing seven years ago, Nelly has seen a shift in the space industry in terms of dynamic and demographic. So things are shifting in interesting ways. Now to say that there is uh, like more diversity is uh, you know, I think it's not there yet. Uh, I mean, the bottom line is you still have Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos as being the kind of the key uh, leaders, at least present in space. But it's interesting to see that now it's not the NASA administrator 
that is bringing that crowd, but it's Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. Back in the days, people would be rushing to hear Charles Bolden, who was an NASA administrator at the time, to listen to him talking. And then you move to like people rushing to listen to Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. So things have really shifted. As Nelly says there, Silicon Valley tycoons Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, founders of their respective space companies, Blue Origin and SpaceX, have become two of the leading figures of the space industry. They lead the way in developing and launching reusable rockets, with which they promise to open the space frontier for more commercial enterprise. The powerful influence of billionaire entrepreneurs also points to wider concerns about limits to accessing outer space as a public and professional arena. For many, the Congress itself is not an easy event to be part of. So next year it's in Dubai, after it's in Paris, after it's in Morocco, but sometimes you find yourself in Adelaide in Australia, so it really is expensive. So, and there is really limited funding and scholarship and so on. So in a way, even though I'm doing a, like trying to get as many people to send me paper, the reality is like even if their paper are accepted, they might not even be able to turn up because it's just too expensive for them to come. So, you know, like that has been maybe a bit of a, maybe perhaps a failure given the fact that, you know, it's nearly going to be 10 years, like so seven years, you had me three years, it's going to be 10 years now that I'm doing these things. And, you know, and I frankly find it very difficult for me as well to like pay every year to come to these places. Even though it is difficult, Nelly continues to find that the benefits of being at the Congress outweigh the costs of getting there. Pete Vorden, who is the leader of that, um, you know, Break Surprise Foundation, was saying that he would be really keen to start a new form of research, which would be to come back to the origin of the DNA, the first ever DNA that arrived on this planet. What was it? And, you know, like, even though I, I'm, I'm finding it very difficult to come back every year, like, to be in the room when there is discussion like this that happens, and to be a, like to hear things like this, which are completely mind-blowing. Like, I mean, they kind of stretch completely your understanding of life or history as you know it. I mean, you're talking about the first ever DNA that might have happened to appear on planet Earth, you know? I mean, that to me is just purely on a curiosity level, completely fascinating. So that's, for me, is like why I will remain, I hope, trying to remain to come back in these places, despite the fact that it's extremely expensive, because I want to hear these things and I want to get extremely stimulated by them and excited about them and actually be really positive about them. The financial costs of the Congress do mean many are left out, but that does not mean to say that space culture is not happening elsewhere. For instance, indigenous peoples have a long history of stargazing. But I think as we began to explore um, and do our research, we realized that indigenous people have been looking at the stars long before either nations or corporations arrived on the horizon. And for the most part, the history of astronomy is a history of receding horizons. But for them, the horizon remains as like very, very, very far off concept. And um, they're completely left out of like the conversation. As Pratima explains very well, the marginalising of people implies a repetition of historical narratives in outer space, where reproducing the same images also serves the same interests. And increasingly it becomes terrifying because so much of space exploration now is reproducing the language of colonisation. Um, you know, this idea of the frontier and settlement and, and so there's a danger of um, of reproducing the same tropes and so um, I think just just an expanded view of different relationships presents such a diversity of opinion um, that we don't I mean and it, it protects us from from becoming this monoculture of mind or worse a monoculture of identity because who gets to go decides to be what human identity is in space thoughts of Pratima also resonate with the findings of anthropologist Tamara Alvarez. In her ethnographic research into 21st century plans to settle and exploit the moon, Tamara finds an evacuation of other histories from popular narratives of outer space. In her eyes, this evacuation demands a more cultural approach to the moon. When, when space actors talk about the cultural heritage of the moon or, or you know, how culture is important in this whole like space exploration, they use it as a way of justifying going to the moon. 
So, for instance, because the moon has been always in our night sky, it is important that we go there as a sort of justification. But actually, they're missing, they're evacuating all these histories that really understand the moon as something enchanted, for instance, something that influenced human and political affairs here on Earth. Um, astrology is the best example, but for millennia, the moon and other astral bodies have had, uh, in the minds of, of many groups, influence in, in biological and political affairs here on Earth. So that is completely missing. Uh, the moon as other astral bodies in this uh, more scientific understanding of it, they are understand as objects that are basically inert and that we can settle and exploit and etc. Specifically the moon uh, because of this um, inorganic nature of, of its land. Pratima and Tamara's ideas of monoculture and evacuation contrast with the popular rhetoric that frames outer space as a place for all mankind. Their words connect to an overall impression of the Congress that we shared with many of our interviewees. In Washington, there appeared to be a distinct lack of critical thinking around the grand designs and space hardware on display, with troubling implications for the possible futures they project towards. This may just be the nature of such events, where industry negotiations and networking remain top priority. Nevertheless, it was telling to find any signs of critical reflection about the nature of space exploration were found pushed to the margins of this enormous convention centre, to not even a handful of technical sessions. If space exploration is indeed imagined to be serving the greater good, then you had to look hard to find those who are at least questioning who's good. When we're like when we're children, we're just very curious and like we're encouraged to be curious and not necessarily think like logically about things. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like somewhere in the middle, we like sometimes lose our curiosity because we're told to like think logically. Yeah. And then now I feel like in the space industry, we're back to curiosity and like yeah. letting our minds wonder, which I definitely believe in. I believe in exploration and I believe in um, not always limiting yourself to what's practical, but I feel like you can have curiosity and be critical at the same time. And it's almost like in this, in this space of the space industry, the critical aspect is discouraged. Like we're supposed to all just want to go to the moon and to Mars and like why wouldn't you love space exploration <laughs> but, like, and if you actually try to talk about like oh but what about this how are we going to reform societies like who's going to go then it's just like oh no let's just go let's build let's build the thing let's go then we'll figure it out <laughs> diversity is not just a mindset or a political position it has a materiality just as the great american railroad is used by the private sector as a metaphor to frame their mission of opening the space frontier other earthbound infrastructures embody historical hierarchies that divide and exclude. Here is Sands Fish again, reflecting on the politics of artifacts. The roadway that was built from New York City to Long Island, uh, and there are some arguments about how the, the veracity of this story, um, but I think it's, it's worth considering in any case that um, the story is that they built these um, kind of uh, roadways above the this this highway and so they had to have bridges um, but the bridges are actually so low that buses can't fit underneath them and one of the theories is uh, and the arguments is that uh, they were just intentionally designed this way that uh, people that had their own cars could make it out to Long Island but people that might take public transportation couldn't uh, and you know the <laughs> the racism implicit in those types of design decisions uh, uh, is very significant uh, and worth reflecting on. I think about these things just in general when I think about all of the different aspects of, of, kind of infrastructure and space, and you mentioned this idea of railroads to space, or this metaphor, um, or elevators in, for a less metaphorical example, right? Uh, and yeah, so I, I think it's really interesting to think about who has access to space and reflect on these kind of this kind of deep thought that we've done about, um, you know, the, the infrastructures that we've built in the past and, and how that either excludes or includes different groups of people. If artifacts have politics, rockets must have politics too. If a bridge can be a barrier, can a railroad become another metaphorical wall? But you're snowed under with work. Do you dream of a vacation at the bottom of the ocean? But you can't float the bill? Have you always wanted to climb the mountains of Mars? But now you're over the hill? You know, the thing is, 
in order to make that process really interesting, you need to maximize diversity. If everybody is very similar, you can step into all these other domains that are microscopically different from each other, but it's not going to have much uh, difference, right? Um, so cultivating diversity, and I always talk about crafting diversity, because of course it's not something that happens naturally. People don't. People tend to flock to work. People that are very similar. So, as a uh, if you're organizing this or you're you're facilitating this, you constantly have to guard it. You have to craft it. But once it works, it can result in fantastic things. As Angelo says there, diversity is certainly not a given, but something to be crafted. The same applies for justice on Earth and in space. This is the mission of Space Enabled, a research group that actively mobilizes space designs and technologies to advance justice. Here is Ufwoma again to explain further. What that means for us is just that um, historically space has been a industry that only a few countries participate in, um, whether because of political reasons or because of financial constraints. And we um, believe that the applications of space technology can really be applied to sustainable development and to advance um, equal opportunity um, all around the world. And so we work to um, redesign space technologies to be more affordable, to be more accessible and user-friendly, um, and to design space technologies that are more sustainable in general in terms of not contributing more <coughs> debris to the space world um, and in conserving precious materials. Mm. Like the phrase advanced justice can sometimes be a little bit, you know, what does that actually mean? Yeah. For me personally, it's about self-determination, about if a company or an individual or community wants to use space or the benefits of space, they should be able to. Because I feel like um, both in companies and academia, people love to, people want to believe that their work has impact and will, yes, you know, we're increasing sustainability here and equity here, but the word justice um, is charged, like in a really positive, like intentional way. Um, and I think it's really bold um, and speaks to, um, I mean, from an, the experience of being there for a year now, like we're constantly grappling with whether or not our work is or is not enabling people and what groups um, we're empowering and what groups we might be disempowering by the work we're doing. And I think that's an important question to ask every single day in a technology space yeah. because technology isn't neutral um, and can always have uh, unintended consequences. The words justice and enabled are powerful and thick with historical and social meanings. And yet, rightly or wrongly, these meanings are interpreted in very different ways by various actors in the space industry. Oh, I feel like everybody believes that their work advances something yeah. positive in the world, yeah. whether that's equality or sustainability, um, mm. accessibility to something. Um, and even like the conversations about like space exploration, um, I think people think that's justice. I think people think like, you know, using language that they're going to colonize the moon so that will reduce the strain on Earth is justice. <laughs> um, or that democratizing, quote unquote, access to space by offering tickets for $3 million yeah. um, to go on a suborbital flight is justice for what communities you're doing those things for, yes. that's like a completely different question. I think that's where we start to lose people if we start to, um, when we ask critical questions <laughs> like that, that's when we start to lose people, I think. As Ufwoma says, everybody believes their work in space does something good. This, of course, brings about problematic conflicts of interests. For instance, some groups want to preserve precious materials in space, while others want to mine them for enormous profits. This tension poses a conundrum how to find a way to a solution to appease many communities rather than a powerful few. As Tamara suggests, there is also a danger of more radical positions evacuating themselves from important conversations. From the outskirts, a more pragmatic and nuanced approach seems necessary to engage with debates about space-based futures. At the beginning of my research I had um, a very radical position, like why should we go to the moon, why, why is this important? Why should we mine the moon at all, you know? But of course, after four years, I've met a number of people that are very passionate about space, and we can't say that all space actors are equal in that regard, you know? So 
you've been here in this Congress and you've heard like um, the narratives of the NASA administrator, the European Space Agency administrator, they are not the same. Um, and some people are more aware of different sort of um, ideas about the moon and different approaches towards the moon. So I think it is our responsibility basically to ally with certain voices or with certain actors um, to tilt a little bit the debate and to shape the debate a little bit. So radical stances like let's not go to the moon, let's keep it pristine, they're not going to work because there are forces in play uh, that are very powerful. So our position has to be very pragmatic and also, um, you know, of course it is uncomfortable. As social scientists, it's much easier, as, as we talked about in, in all the times, you know, um, to have a conversation among ourselves, like being critical and not really contributing anything productive to the space debate in particular. But of course, you can also have these conversations with them and your stance is going to change. Probably it's not going to be this black and white sort of approach towards the moon, like keep it pristine or just go and mine it, but um, it's going to be more moderate. For instance, the, the paper I presented was about in situ resource utilization can be sustainable if done properly. So it's not anymore about don't mine the moon, don't use the resources of the moon, but at least do it sustainable. So in that regard, my stance has changed a bit. Trying to change from a more radical stance to a pragmatic one, Tamara has also encountered voices from inside space working groups which resemble a kind of space fundamentalism. Of course, I encounter people um, that are like way more reluctant to, to you know, consider these approaches as something um, valuable because they are entrenched in the idea that going to space is part of our evolutionary future. So the same that we came out of the cave, which is not true as an anthropologist, I can tell you that it's not that caves were our, I mean, because caves were the homes for uh, predators and not for us, but anyway. Um, so in their idea, there's this linear evolution of humans coming up from the cave, then, you know, exploiting Earth and inhabiting Earth and then moving to other astral bodies. So because they are so entrenched in this idea, for them, once you criticize the fact that going to to space has to be constrained in some way, you are betraying the very progress of humankind. So they're not going to change their opinion. And uh, actually I left some of those working groups because it was impossible to have a conversation, you know. Uh, in other places like the Hague International Space Work, um, Governance Working Group, I did find that we had several, you know, some, some common points that we could discuss. Uh, like in civil resource utilization, it's not the same. Mining water ice reserves in the South Pole or reducing the regulation from the highlands. So the environmental impact in the moon is not the same. The kind of damage that you do to sites of scientific interest is not the same. So maybe instead of imagining like not going to the moon at all, maybe you have to imagine really bringing all those stakeholders in the debate and finding a solution that is okay for as many actors as possible. You know. Even if the solution for all mankind is difficult or impossible to reach, the negotiations tomorrow highlights are important to continue. The process of negotiation acknowledges the multiple concerns and perspectives about the moon and outer space in general that are often left on the fringes by dominant pro-space narratives. As humans continue irrepressibly to expand their presence into outer space, it is inevitable that the complex issues of diversity from Earth go with them. As Angelo helps us to understand, this mess is part of human nature, a mess that also presents a chance for artists, designers and others to join in the space debate. I look at space exploration um, more as an expansion of human civilization and human culture, uh, something that is unstoppable, very important. It's a drive which is part of the system itself and there is not one single locus where you can position that drive. So it's not like somebody is, or, or some small group of people are deciding this. This is really a deep, is a force that is typical for an emergent system. This, it, it, it's not centralized. Mm -hmm. So it's inevitable, this will happen anyway. So for me, my stance is, for people that are critical about space exploration, which is good, of course, and I'm critical myself, is you might as well join it and try to reshape some of those paradigms instead of just trying to hold off and try to and, and and basically trying to make a case to put all our efforts into 
turning Earth into the ideal world. And once we've turned Earth into an ideal world, then we'll be ready to move into outer space, which is never going to work. It's never going to happen. The world is never going to be perfectly organized. We're always going to be a bit messy. This is human nature, and we're going to take part of that mess to outer space. And you might as well embrace that reality and then take it into account and into your design choices instead of all these fantasies about creating perfect worlds. From our various conversations in Washington, we were impressed by the different ways our interviewees each embrace the realities of outer space. Outer space is a place that demands diversity in multiple ways, from the cultural and social to the practical. Though changes are evident in the space industrial landscape, there remains concern about the threat of human history repeating beyond Earth's atmosphere. Our interviewees embody and call for a more cultural critical approach to space exploration one that spares human futures in space from a copy-pasting of monocultural images and ways of life, and the marginalisation of people from participating in things to come. Whether artists, designers, engineers or anthropologists, all were ready to break away from the physical and conceptual bounds of Earth in their design choices, and prepare to transgress the borderlines separating their discipline from others. Together, they shared a collective openness and willingness to work with and for diversity, embracing different cultures and perspectives, along with the possibility of changing their own. This common principle is also a recognisable strategy in practice. The useful non-expert is a key role for instigating transdisciplinary approaches and also for contributing to debates in more established space industry contexts about possible futures in outer space. Starting from the outskirts of space, you need to be inventive in your methods for joining in. Thanks for listening. In the next episode, we explore the power of narrative in shaping public and industrial understandings of outer space. We discuss how particular images of the future work to normalise a dominant vision for humankind as a spacefaring civilization, a vision that directs large swathes of the space community. <laughs>